the thing that the Lord has laid on my heart to, to talk to you about this morning uh, from uh, this passage here um, is I want to talk to you about contentment. I want to talk to you about contentment. Do you know what? In my humble opinion, <coughs> Facebook has got a lot to answer for. Now, I am not anti-Facebook by any stretch of the, mo- of the imagination. It is a fantastic way of keeping in touch with people, um, and it's an excellent tool when it comes to planning and organizing social events, don't you think? Maybe not. <coughs> but it does have a few downsides. It has a few downsides. And one of the most obvious downsides of Facebook is this. We are constantly bombarded with images of smiley, happy people. And these smiley, happy people uh, seem to have perfect lives and perfect families. And after you scroll through a news feed on Facebook, you can easily be left at the end of it feeling that your life doesn't quite measure up. Everyone else seems to be having a whale of a time, and your life in comparison is, well, a bit lacklustre in comparison. But what we often forget, of course, <clears throat> is that on Facebook, we're getting, we're getting really um, an airbrushed, people are presenting an airbrushed version of themselves, of their lives. They're presenting, it's not reality, they're presenting an image that they want to show to their social circle. That's what we're doing on Facebook. If it was a true representation of the reality of our lives, it would be pictures of me waking up looking like a hay bale in the morning, um, or photos of us scowling after another frustrating day at work, or yet another burnt meal that we've left in the oven too long. That's real life. That's not the candy-coated version that we see on Facebook, is it? Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing photos on Facebook, and it's a good way of of being connected in an increasingly disconnected world. But the big issue is this. Facebook really speaks something about... It speaks something to the heart of the rising epidemic of discontentedness that we have in our society. There's this rising epidemic of discontentedness. Um, And Paul spoke about this phenomenon of comparing ourselves with other people. Um, He said in 2 Corinthians, he said, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So comparing ourselves to others and feeling discontented as a result is nothing new. Paul knew all about it. But unfortunately, its effects now have reached epidemic proportions because we've got more access than ever to all these carefully airbrushed images of people coming at us all the time. So the Facebook generation is a discontented generation. Whatever we have, the shine always seems to be taken off it by what somebody else has. And so we become discontented for an almost endless list of reasons. We don't have the house someone else has. We don't have the car someone else has. We don't have the career somebody else has. We don't have the family life somebody else has. We don't have the holiday somebody else has just had. 
And so there's no end to this sort of poisonous vortex, really, of discontent. And we find ourselves being dragged into it, and we can't seem to escape from it. This discontentedness. I want to think for you for a second, I know this is strange, but I want to think to you for a second, what would the Apostle Paul's Facebook profile look like? Can you imagine? He'd be like, well, here's another one of my recent stoning in Lystra and Derby. Oh, and here's another one where I was almost left for dead. Oh, and here's my favourite one of all, the one where I received 39 lashings from the Jews. You wouldn't really know how to react to those Facebook images, would you? I mean, should you, should you like them, or should you comment on them, or how should you really react? Paul summed up his life in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deep, journeys often in waters, perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the, perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So overall, it would not have looked good on Facebook. It would, his Facebook profile would not have looked good. And if you looked on the Apostle Paul's Facebook, you would definitely feel better about your own life rather than worse. But do you know what? Despite it all, the Apostle Paul was someone who was happy. He was someone who was truly content. He was truly content. He says in verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content. So he speaks something here in these verses. Paul speaks something, six things, I think, very important, that he speaks right into the heart of our self-comparing, discontented generation. And he tells us about what true contentment means, what true contentment means. And so as we go through, we're going to look at these truths that the Apostle Paul brings out here. Now the context of these verses is that Paul really is returning to the nub of why he's written this epistle to the Philippians in the first place. Do you remember why he wrote the, the letter to the Philippians? Do you remember? Do you remember the purpose? It was basically a thank you letter to the Philippians. He was saying, thank you very much for the gift you sent me at the hands of Epaphroditus. And if we look in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. I think it's very interesting, just as we look at those verses, um, that Paul assumes the best at them. Do you know if someone seems to forget you for a while, or they don't seem to get in touch with you, you just say, oh, they probably don't really care about me. We tend to assume the worst about them. But Paul says here that he assumes the best about them. He says, you did care for me, really, but you just lacked the opportunity. Do you ever have that thing when someone doesn't contact you for a while, and you just think, well, they don't care about me, they can't be bothered. We we naturally assume the worst. But what Paul does here is he assumes the best about them. And the Bible says that love believes all things. So we need to learn to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt for the motives that they have. So, 
So Paul is returning here, really. The context is that he's returning in these verses to the main reason that he's written this epistle in the first place. But he goes on to give, really, I think, six points, six secrets of true contentment. There's six secrets of true contentment that Paul brings out from these verses. Um, Most of us spend our whole time, whole lives, trying to find contentment. Many people do. And for them, it eludes them their whole lives. They never get to that point where they've found true contentment. But the Apostle Paul here, he gives six points about true contentment. And the first we see, really, is in verses 11 to 12. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So secret number one, of true contentment is true contentment is not contingent upon your circumstances. It's not contingent upon your circumstances. It's very interesting, I think, to realise that even the Apostle Paul, we always think the Apostle Paul was someone who had everything sorted. And in many ways, he he did. He was a great example. But even he had to go through a very steep learning curve when it came to contentment. It didn't come easy to him. There must have come a point initially when he went through the hardships that he went through that he wasn't immediately contented. He must have been irritated um, and disgruntled. But as Paul's ministry went on, he learned or he trained himself to be contented in all circumstances. And in many ways, this was probably because Paul had more opportunity than anybody else to practice contentment. Um, (laughs) Because his circumstances were constantly changing, weren't they? They were constantly changing. He was in challenging difficulties, um, challenging situations. And he learnt, he soon learnt a lesson that many people um, take their whole lives to really learn. Um, And that lesson is that you cannot rely on favourable circumstances as the basis of your happiness. You cannot rely on favourable circumstances as the basis of your happiness. Do you know what? Sometimes people who have everything go swimmingly in their lives for a long period of time, those people are sometimes actually at a disadvantage in life. Because what happens with those people is they get to a stage where they start to delude themselves. They start to think, everything's going well for me, I'm contented. Um, And they start to delude themselves and find those things as the source of their contentment. Sometimes you're actually better if you go through a few knocks in life. uh, Because then you realise that the things that you're basing your contentment on are very shallow and very shifting. So, you know, maybe you feel that your life at the moment is providing you with ample reasons to be cheesed off and discontented. But I want to say to you this morning that that is good news. Rejoice. Because that was the same for the Apostle Paul. Rejoice. You're going to get an exhilarated uh, lesson in contentment if you abide in Christ. Um, So like the Apostle Paul, you have to learn contentment. We all have to learn contentment.
Do you know what? Jesus told a parable about a rich man, and he was basing all of his happiness on life um, on the fact that he happened to be wealthy and rich. Um, And because he was doing so well for himself, and because he seemed to be so successful, he decided that he would expand his empire just a little bit further. Have you ever felt like that? Do you have an empire you want to expand? I'm just going to expand it just a little bit further. And the way he wanted to do that is he was going to build some bigger barns. I'm a farmer, I've got lots of money, and I'm going to build some bigger barns because, you know, then my life will really be sorted. I don't know why he thought that. Um, But just at the moment, just at the moment, he's making those plans. And just at the moment um, that he thinks he's going to you know, really be able to take his, take his ease and take his rest and enjoy life now. God says to him, you fool, you fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things that you have provided? You fool, you're a fool. You've based your contentment on the wrong circumstances. You've based it on a foundation that cannot secure you in the end. And for many people, their blanket of security is their bank balance, it's their job, it's their home. But Paul was someone who knew what it was to be abased and to have nothing. But he also knew at the same time how to, um, how to abound. You know, sometimes learning how to abound and how to dealing with having plenty can be even more challenging than not having enough, surprisingly. Um, do you remember in the parable of the sower? Do you remember Jesus talked about the, the seed that was sown um, on the thorns? Um, and he said, these are the ones sown, uh, sown in, among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And notice that phrase, he says, the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. The trouble with riches and the trouble with money and the trouble with possessions is that they lie to us. They lie to us. That's what Jesus is saying. They tell us that we are immovable, that we are safe, that we are secure. But how flimsy a basis for our security they really are. Some of you, Adam... Uh, and uh, David Mouncer have been involved in doing some street work among the homeless people in Norwich. And what's very interesting when you encounter homeless people is how many of them were actually very, very successful at some time before in their lives. How many of them had been educated? Um, How many of them had good jobs? Um, How many of them had families? But what happened was, because of an unfortunate series of events some tragic circumstances, breakdowns in relationships, they suddenly lost everything and they became uh, destitute on the streets. Now that could happen, I mean I hope it doesn't happen to any of us, but that could happen to any of us. These things are very, very fragile. They're very, very flimsy. The reality is your health could fail so that you can no longer work. The reality is is that your company could go under. A hundred and one things could happen to you 
that change your current financial situation. Now, I'm not trying to depress you this morning. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that those things cannot be our foundation. They cannot be our foundation. Paul says, I know how to, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Although there were times when Paul was in severe need, there were other times when he did abound and when he had plenty, he had more than enough. There's something about being materially poor, I think, um, uh, and that kind of continually throws us back into the arms of, arms of God. If we don't have a lot of money or a lot in the way of physical possessions, we're thrown back into the arms of God because a material hunger and need often fosters a spiritual sense of hunger and need. So when we don't have much physically, then we tend to be more hungry for God. And do you think that that's why? If you look at the world, where are the places where Christianity seems to be booming? Is it in the West? Is it in the affluent parts of the world? No, no, no. The West seems like a spiritual desert at times, doesn't it? But it's in the poorer regions of the world that they're experiencing the blessing. Because so often poor people or poorer people, um, they're physically less well, on, well, off, well off than us. <laughs> but spiritually speaking, they're much richer. They're much richer because they've often found the true source of contentment. Now, the writer of the book of Proverbs, he recognized that there's a danger when we abound too much and when we have too much. And he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. So Paul had learned, he'd learned not to look at his outer resources or his outer situation, but he'd learned his sort of inner resources. He'd learned to trust, I think. I think what he'd learned to trust in was just the simple promise of Christ's presence with him in every situation. Do you remember the book of, in the book of Hebrews, it says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Jesus is enough. Jesus himself is enough. And it's only that promise of Jesus to never leave us and to never forsake us that satiates that need that we have for our constant thirst for more. That ache we see when we're on Facebook and we see that someone else has had something else go well in their lives. What haven't they got? You know, it's a bit like the Christmas letter, isn't it? Of the people who keep sending around the Christmas letter of all the things that they've done and so-and-so's got a new pony and so-and-so's got this or whatever they have. But Jesus should be enough. Jesus should be enough to satiate that constant thirst for more. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Now, the second thing I want to say to you, looking at verse 13 now, the second source of true contentment, the second secret of true contentment Paul gives us is this. He says, true contentment is a supernatural gift. It's a supernatural gift. He says in uh, <clears throat> verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, 
you don't need to work as a GP for very long, which I do, um, along with Adam, my brother at the back, um, to, to realise that the default state of human beings is not euphoric happiness. Uh, in fact, you probably only need to be in a consultation for about 10 minutes um, before you work out the fact that there are a lot of very, very discontented people out there, a lot of very unhappy people out there. And sometimes the people who you expect to be happy and contented and the people who seem to have everything to get together are often the people who are more miserable than anybody else. But I don't think you have to be a GP to arrive at that conclusion. I think you can just go around in your day-to-day -day business and look at the expressions of people as they drive in their vehicles and as you see them on the streets and you realise that... Um, you realise the, the truth, really, that there is an awful lot of what my Northern Irish relatives would call flat tyre faces. So you realise that there's an awful lot of, of those people out there. So happiness and contentment is really a very alien experience to, to most people. But Paul says here, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse out of context and they've kind of turned it into a verse to say, I can do anything I want. I can run a marathon. I can win a TV game show. I can do anything I want. But is that what this verse means? Well, all the scripture holds together, doesn't it? So in order to understand what he's saying in verse 13, we need to understand what he was talking about in verses 11 and 12. And what he was really talking about is the fact that I can do all things, I can endure all things, I can be content in all circumstances. He's not necessarily saying I can win everything in every situation in life, and I'm going to use that verse to prove that. <laughs> but what he's saying is, is that I can find contentment. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. So... Basically, you would normally consider someone who was content despite being imprisoned, despite being beaten, despite being shipwrecked, despite being lashed. You would consider them mentally deranged if they were content after all of that. You would just think this is abnormal human behavior. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can live this horrific nightmare of a life being confident that Christ will strengthen me. But I think the real question for us, and I think the thing that's so difficult for us, is it's a question of faith, isn't it? Do we really believe that? Because so often I have to confess, I don't think I believe that. Do we really believe that Christ will strengthen us, not only to endure the things that we have to endure in life, but do we believe that Christ will strengthen us to be content and to be happy despite those things. When we're knocked down by one obstacle or another, do we actually believe this verse? Do you believe that Christ can strengthen you to endure the difficulties of a stressful home life, or the pressures of a demanding job, or the bitterness of disappointment, or the pain of rejection? Do you believe that Christ can strengthen you through that situation? Well, the Apostle Paul believed that. The Apostle Paul believed that. The Apostle Paul believed that.
You know, many of us, we, we nod our heads in, in agreement when it comes to the resurrection. And we say, yes, I believe that. I believe that God can supernaturally bring what was a cold corpse lying in a tomb back to life. And yet when it comes to these practical things in our lives, like can I be content? Can Christ strengthen me to deal with this situation? We then, we then struggle. We're then lacking in faith. But has God changed? Has God changed? Has the Christ who strengthened Paul, is it a different Christ now that we believe in? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I'm not being glib. I'm not saying that any of this is easy. It's not easy to be content. I'm not always contented uh, all the time, and I don't think any of us are. But let's believe that Jesus is able. Let's believe that Christ is able to allow us to be content in him despite whatever we're going through right now. So true contentment, it doesn't come naturally to us. It's a supernatural gift. But let's look at verses uh, 15 and 16 uh, about the third thing we've got, to the third secret of contentment. Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So the third truth here is that true contentment flows out of a grateful heart. It flows out of a grateful heart. What I think is very interesting is how Paul makes so much of this gift that the Philippians had given him even though we know from verse 1 that the gift was probably a bit late in arriving, um, and even though we know that it was probably actually quite a small gift, because he says in verse 16 that the gift they gave was just for his necessities. So it was probably just enough to really cover the things that he needed, the bare minimum. It wasn't a very it wasn't as though they'd given him, you know, a, a Jaguar or a Mercedes or whatever. They'd just really given him a few pennies, you know, so that he would have some pocket money to be able to, to manage a little bit better. But despite the fact that it was a very small gift, and despite the fact that it was um, a late gift, Paul is very grateful to them. He's very grateful to them. If you think of all that Paul had done for them, he'd shared with them his life, he'd laboured with them, Um, He'd given them the gospel, the precious gospel that was able to save their souls for eternity, to give them that hope for the future. And so really they'd given him a few pennies and it was just nothing much in comparison. But Paul is here really genuinely grateful. He's deeply grateful for what they gave him. And this is another truth, that gratitude, being grateful for things, is really the mother of happiness and the mother of contentedness. Gratitude is the mother of contentedness. Paul is genuinely and deeply grateful. But not only do we receive contentedness when we're grateful to others, but we receive contentment when we're grateful to God for the things he's given us. The Bible makes it clear that there is a link between thankfulness and peace. Thankfulness and contentment. It says in Colossians 3 and verse 15, it says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
peace and thankfulness, gratitude and contentment. Now, secret of contentment number four. Secret of contentment number four. True contentment, true contentment frees us to celebrate the prosperity of others. It frees us to celebrate the prosperity of others. Paul says in verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. A contented person is really a free person. They're free, they don't feel any lack in their own lives. And so because of that, they are, they're no longer tethered or moored to needing to get more for themselves. They're not seeking, that, they're not seeking um, the gift, but they're free to concentrate on other people and to um, celebrate the fruit that abounds to their account. You know, we often feel crushed, don't we, by those Facebook pictures of the successes um, of others that we can do. Um, but how often do we really feel free to fully enter into the joys of others? Because Paul's contentment was rooted in Jesus Christ, he was released from the need to beg the Philippians for more for himself. Instead, his concern here is really others-focused rather than self-focused. He's far more concerned about how this gift here is accruing more spiritual blessing for the Philippians than he is concerned about the way that the gift would help him personally. And we see this time and time again in the book of Philippians. We see that Paul's joy revolves around the spiritual progress the Philippians are making. Do you remember in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And do you remember in verse 9, he says, he prayed that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And do you remember in uh, chapter 1 and verse 24, he was considering the possibility that he'd actually rather die and be with Christ, and yet he decides, actually, for your sake, I'd rather stay here. Um, And do you remember how tenderly he speaks of them in chapter 4 and verse 1? He says that they're beloved, long-for brethren, my joy and my crown. So everything Paul did revolved his joy, his contentment, revolved around the Philippians. Um, and, and the Philippians were everything to Paul. That's the reality. The Philippians were everything to Paul. He laboured for them. He prayed for them without ceasing. They were always in his heart. They were always in his mind. But I wonder about us. You know, I'm very challenged as I look at the Apostle Paul. I'm very challenged when I look at the, just how devoted he was to these Philippians, about how they were everything. And I think this is probably a lesson not just for those of us who are in ministry, but for all Christians, because we're all in ministry, aren't we, in one way or another. But do we really have that same passion or that same drive for people? Have they really become everything to us? Has their progress, has their spiritual progress really become everything to us? That that's now the main focus of our lives. I wonder whether it has... Um, I wonder why we're so different to the Apostle Paul. I don't know. I'm just throwing out the the question, really. I wonder why we're so different to the Apostle Paul. 
I wonder why we don't have that kind of concern that Paul had for the people he was ministering to. Why we're not necessarily kept up uh, at night laboring in prayer for others. Why is there that disconnect? And I think it's partly to do with the fact, at least, that Paul had found true contentment in himself. Um, He had found his contentment in Christ. So he was released from that need to keep comparing himself, to keep looking at Facebook, to keep getting you know, absorbed in all these things. And he was free from all that to become focused on the Philippians. So, so that is really um, something for us to consider. Now, um, verse, 15, verse, um, verse uh, 18. Um, and really, this is the next truth that I want to talk to you about. True contentment, true contentment centers on the glory of God. That's very important. True contentment centers on the glory of God. In verse 18, Paul says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent to you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul was never happier than when he saw God being glorified. Um, We learnt, didn't we, earlier on in Philippians, this recurring theme really, we learnt that Paul had really swapped self-centred ambition for Jesus-centred ambition. Earlier in Philippians he says, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now always Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is really... He has an indifference. He has a kind of a holy indifference about what happens to him. He says, you can do with my body whatever you want. As long as Christ is magnified, as long as Jesus is magnified, I'm happy. Um, I was reading through the book of um, Acts uh, the other day, actually, um, uh, and uh, uh, Fumi and I were reading through it together, and um, we... We came across these words of um, Paul uh, when he's speaking to um, the Ephesian elders. And they're some of the words that really, really speak to me again and again. Keep coming back to these verses, um, these, this verse of, of, of what Paul says there. And he says, None of these things move me, and nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may run my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Neither do I count my life dear to myself, that I may fulfill the ministry which the Lord Jesus has given me. Because you see, for Paul, Jesus was his all in all. And God's glory was his only goal. And they weren't just words for Paul. I sometimes think it's so easy to be very gushy when we're in church. Are you gushy when you're in church? I can be very gushy. And it's great to, it's great to worship. It's great to praise the Lord and raise our hands to him and enjoy his presence. Amen. I'm all for that. But we can often say things like, I surrender all. I give everything to you. Um, you know, I love you. I worship you. You're everything. But, but, but they're not a reality lived out in our lives. But for Paul... God's glory, um, being his passion, it was something he lived out with every breath. 
They weren't just words. They weren't just sentiment. It was a lived-out reality for Paul. And really, that's what we get to in verse 18. We see this concern for God's glory and God's honour when he describes the gift that was sent to the Philippians. He says, it's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So he's using here the language of the Old Testament. He's using the same language of the Old Testament with the, with the sacrifices. And his, Paul's highest joy here is that the generous gift that the Philippians have given, which is a sign of the spiritual progress that the Philippians have made, that's being offered to God like an aroma, like an aroma, like a savour of sacrifice going to God. And Paul is happy. He abounds because of that. He abounds because he's made God's glory his priority. God's glory his priority. Now, verse 19. We all know this verse, don't we? It says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And this is the final truth that I want to bring out this morning. This is the final truth. Truth number six. Don't worry, we're nearly there. True contentment, true contentment is anchored in, in a confidence in the richness of God's supply. It's anchored in a confidence in the richness of God's supply. Paul knew that God could supply the Philippians' needs. But when we have confidence in the fact that God will supply our needs, it frees us to be recklessly generous with others because we're no longer trying to gather for ourselves. We're no longer trying to protect ourselves. We can freely pour out ourselves unreservedly to others because we're confident that God will provide for us. It also frees us to be radically content because we know that whatever the situation we face, God will more than enough, abundantly, supply our need. Jesus actually said that God knows what we want even before we pray. He says, your father knows the things that you have need of even before you ask him. But not only does he know what we need, our unspoken needs, our deepest needs, our hurts, our pains, our physical needs... He also has the resources to meet those needs. And his resources are limitless. The Bible reminds us, it says of God, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And his riches, his supply is more than enough to, um, to, to meet those things that we genuinely need. Not necessarily want, but need. But do you know what? One of the things that's interesting here is Paul says, my God. He says, my God. He doesn't just say God, but he knew God. He knew he had that fatherly relationship with God. He knew God in a personal way. And he'd seen God's faithfulness time and time and time again in his life. And he knew that God would come through for him this time. And have you known God's faithfulness? I'm sure we can all point to times when we've seen God's supply time and time again. And that enables us to say, my God will supply all my needs. I've seen him provide for me in the past. I know that his mercies are new every morning. And I know, 
I know that whatever happens, that my God, the God who is my Father, will provide for me. We know God will supply for us because we have a relationship with him. He is our Father. So Paul was confident in God's supply. What do you lack today? What needs do you have that you feel aren't being met? First of all, we need to distinguish between a need and a want. They're not the same thing. I would love to have a Mercedes, but I probably don't need one. But is it a need? A second home in the sun is not really a need. It's more of a want. But secondly, if you've gone through that process, do you trust that God is willing and able to meet that need? And maybe it's as simple as there's something facing you this week that you feel you cannot get through on your own strength. And it's like a brick wall and it's ahead of you this morning. And you're, how on earth am I going to get through this thing? But maybe all you need is grace. Maybe all you need is just enough grace to get through the next few days. And you know, God will supply that to you. God will, I have every confidence that God will supply you that need. This verse in the psalm says, The young lions lack and they suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. They won't lack any good thing. So they are the secrets of contentment. They're not my secrets, by the way. They're Paul's secrets. Um, but, but it's vitally important. We need to feed ourselves on this. We need to feed ourselves on this truth because we live in very discontented times. We live in the Facebook generation. And the defining mark of the Facebook generation is discontent and craving for more. So we need to chew over these truths from God's word. True contentment is not contingent upon our circumstances. It's a supernatural gift. It doesn't come to us naturally. It flows out of a grateful heart. It centers on the glory of God and is anchored in a confidence in the richness of God's supply. But now, this is very sad, we are coming really to the last stop on our journey through the book of Philippians. Isn't that sad? Oh, (laughs) Um, and really we've just got a couple of verses uh, left, literally three verses. So first of all, notice that in verse 21, Paul sends his greetings to every saint in Christ Jesus. And that reiterates the fact that the title of saint is every believer. We've learned that again and again. It's not as some churches or traditions say, it's not that there are particular saints and you have to reach this elite standing. Every saint in Christ Jesus. Every saint in Christ Jesus. We're all saints. Um, In verse 22, uh, Paul talks there about sending greetings from Caesar's household. That's an interesting little snippet. Because we know that Paul had been in prison whilst he was, he'd been in prison in Rome whilst he was writing this letter. And we know how evil a man Nero was. We know that he was notoriously evil. We know that he used to use the Christians as, um, as candlesticks, didn't he? In his, in his torches, in his garden, he used to light the Christians there. So he was a very evil man, uh, uh, Nero. But we know that Paul's time 
in Rome had not been unfruitful. Even when he was there, the gospel had penetrated right to the heart of the Roman establishment. Because he says there, doesn't he, especially those who are of Caesar's household. Especially those who are of Caesar's household. And finally, in verse 23, what really happens is we come full circle. We come full circle in the book of Philippians. In uh, verse 2, he starts off Philippians with a greeting of grace. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 23, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Just as the epistle opened with a greeting of grace, it ends with a greeting of grace. And not only does this epistle, but the theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is God's grace, his unmerited favour towards us sinners who don't deserve it. Grace. And not only is it the heart of this book, but grace is the heart of the whole Christian faith. Grace. And ultimately... It's only as we start to understand something of that grace that we can find true contentment in the one that the Bible says is full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ himself. So I just pray that um, you know, um, you've been blessed through this book of Philippians and through God's word. Um, and I pray... Um, I really pray that, that we will know more of the realities of this book. That the realities that are on the page in this book will become a reality in our lives. And that we would increasingly content ourselves in Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to you uh, this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, and if you're not a Christian this morning, and maybe you're looking down all sorts of avenues and, val avenues and valleys and all over the place to find contentment, to find something that's going to make you happy. But we know that true joy is only in the presence of the Lord. And in his presence, there are pleasures forevermore.